Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Sam Abrika, the CEO of Nova Money, an AI financial planner designed to help you build financial freedom. In this episode, we will hear the story of Anushka, a chemical engineer who graduated in the middle of a financial crisis where job opportunities were scarce, especially for young graduates. Hello, Anush. Hello, thanks for having me on the podcast. Welcome to the show. So, Anush, you, can you tell us a bit more background on what happened when, when you graduated and how do you see the parallel with today's situation? Yeah, so a bit of background about myself. I've actually got 11 years postgraduate experience. I graduated from Brit Brick University, so the University of Nottingham, with a B.Eng. in chemical engineering. And as you said, I graduated uh, at the peak of the financial crisis, 2010. But I, I still managed to establish myself in my industry of choice, which is engineering. I think I've asked myself this since last week, actually, when we first spoke. The similarities between now and then, if you think about the subprime loan as the virus, so to speak, and then you've got a financial crisis, isn't it, at the back of it. It's a byproduct of the, the horror of the subprime loan and the virus. But I think here you have a situation that is worse because Corona on its own, COVID-19 on its own, was an event in time, in history, that stopped the world. So if you take an example, if you've got a blue-collared worker or someone working in a grocery store as an example... Even before you have a financial crisis whereby you no, you no longer have a job, you can't actually get to your place of work, can you? You can't take public transport. You can't work at a grocery store and, and mingle with people. So I think it's actually a double whammy now compared to what it was 10 years ago. It has completely stopped people in their tracks, stopped industries in their tracks, if you think of aviation, again, before any financial crisis actually looms and affects. And my heart really goes out to, to graduates, because that's the other thing we, we, we um, were talking about briefly, isn't it, how it was 10 years ago versus now. And I think in the past, when you're looking for a permanent job, you still have the ability to try out temporary work. And right now, these poor graduates don't even have a pool of temporary jobs to tap into because restaurants have to close up, you know. And then on top of that, now when you're trying to actually apply for your dream job or what you graduated in, You've got a smaller pool of permanent jobs to tap from because people have become more efficient as a result of the pandemic. Everything's gone online. You've probably been able to streamline your business and you may actually require less people uh, to be more productive. You graduated in 2010 with a chemical engineering degree. What were your expectations at that time? And how did you get to your first job? Was it directly or because you, you mentioned getting like part-time jobs? Sure. Excellent question. <laughs> so I laugh because as a chemical engineer, your dream job is to be employed by the BPs and Shells and Chevrons of the world. So in my eyes, and I'd say in the eyes of my peers, 
even though I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dumb, I still, I still was uh, top of my class. I, for well some done. reason, never, <laughs> thank you, so, for some reason, never had the opportunity to be hired by these oil and gas multinationals. And I felt like a failure. And so you graduate with this fancy degree in June of 2010, and there are no opportunities. Nothing lands on your lap. Despite being the top of the class. I was not the top of the class. I was the top 10% of the class. So yes, still high enough. And I felt very dejected. But we were all in a similar boat. So if you look at my peers, everyone was struggling. You know, it was a very international mix of people. And a lot of people, if they didn't have a job, they had to go back to to their home countries. But the, the one interesting is I was very creative. I've never been dogmatic and I've never expected things to just fall in my lap. And at the time, and I believe these things still exist because I have a sister who's nine years younger than me and in a similar predicament now in terms of trying to get a job. Basically, there was an internship that was quite fascinating because it was created by the three universities. I think it was Warwick, Reading and Nottingham. And it was basically a pool of money that they tapped into to offer X number of students internships for three months. And so I thought this is a brilliant opportunity to get experience with a view of making it a permanent job. And so I took the opportunity. And interestingly, the SME that I was working for didn't have to fork out a dime. So the £1,000 that I got per month for three months came out from this fund from the universities. So I was paid £3,000 tax-free. And again, now at the end of the three months, you have another expectation. Oh, I've done a wonderful job. They must love me. They're going to be offering me something. Nothing was coming. It was my last week. And now I'm panicking. And this was not even in Nottingham, where I went to uni at. This was in Lincolnshire. So pretty rural. I had to maintain rent in my Nottingham premise and pay for rent in Lincolnshire. But the cost of living was low. People were really nice. Wasn't chemical engineering, but it was mechanical. So still not the end of the world, but required some adaptability. It was very rural, very English. At times, there was even racist slurs, you know, but you get past that. I even had to work on the shop floor. People don't want to listen, I think, to a woman. They can't bear to talk engineering with a woman, let alone with a funny accent and from a funny country. But once you get past all of that, it was actually a pretty decent job. And so I wanted to work permanently with them. And it was actually my landlord, because I was lodging with them in their house in Lincolnshire, in Spalding, place called Spalding. Yes, like the basketball, Spalding. <laughs> and David was saying, well, why don't you just ask? Ask them if they would hire you. And I thought, bloody hell, that's a good idea. And so I went to work. I spoke to my immediate line manager, Fred. I was nervous. And Fred said, go for it. Because what's the worst that could happen? Peter says no. And I said, that's that's brilliant. And I was nervous. And Peter wasn't in that week. So I took the opportunity to send an email. And lo and behold, Sam, I got the job. And that's how I landed my first permanent job in the UK. 
who dares wins. Yes, exactly. You need to learn to ask the question. You need to be proactive to, you know, in terms of looking for opportunities out there. And you have to be versatile and adaptable. And I think these core skills hold you in any tumultuous time. And more so now, when I look at my sister especially, I think she's a very creative individual. And that's what you need. You need creativity. Or else, I don't think you're going to be getting to where you want to get, if that makes sense. So you dared to ask if you would be hired for this job. Was it your dream job? I think, Sam, there is no definition of a dream job. Call me jaded. And maybe it's 11 years out of university. <laughs> But at the time, you know, when you were young and naive and Oh, I don't know. I, I think that's such a difficult question to answer. To be honest, even after graduating, I never necessarily had a dream job. It was always geared towards, am I going to make a decent return? Is it linked to what I've studied? I was very hung up about that. So in answer to my first job being my dream job, no, it wasn't. But it introduced me to an industry that was new to me, that I actually funnily enough enjoyed. And it was during a presentation that I had given. So I was only working for, at this stage, maybe a year. But they enjoyed my presentation skills and I was presenting at a conference when there was a competitor who saw me and offered me my next job. So I think that was one of the um, benefits. And I stayed in that industry, materials handling, for a good four years, I think, before moving into consultancy. Sorry, five years before moving into consultancy. When did you realize that the job that, that you actually took was something that you that's like a good for you i think a job is defined as something good for you when it's playing to your core skills first of all you need to be able to recognize what is it that you're good at and then that's your selling point and i recognize from an early start that as a chemical engineer i did not want to be sat behind piping and instrumentation diagrams all day long um, i enjoy i enjoyed interaction with clients i enjoyed selling I enjoyed presenting a solution. I enjoyed understanding the process. I enjoyed making things efficient. And so there's money in that. There's value in that. So I think a person needs to be cognizant of what their value is. And really, after three, four years, you should be able to see that. And then you recognize that's a transferable skill that you can basically apply through different industries. So I started off in materials handling, and I've kind of stayed in consultancy, did a lot of engineering, procurement construction type projects, and now back in consultancy and actually in sustainability. So I'm leading sustainability at a British utilities consultancy firm now. I remember I graduated in 2011, just one year after you, and it was the peak of the European crisis. Greg just had defaulted and everything was going quite well during summer. I had headhunters calling me literally every single week while I was in internship. I had job offers piling up. And then August came and everything disappeared. 
And I remember that it was quite the panic at the time. Even if you had engineering degrees, even if you were from the top universities, you would almost say goodbye to your dream job and switch to survival mode. Okay, what can I get right now? At least to pass the crisis, nobody knew how long it would last. It actually lasted two years. So that I might move on because I would still get the skills and I would still get the professional experience that is required in, in the corporate world to, to get ready the, the job that you, you would like. One of the tough parts was to know what to do when you, you, your ideal of your first job and the, the thing you would do is not possible. How did you manage that kind of disillusion and transition into reality? That's a very good question. I think the way I, I handled it was I always look at, you know, how much I'm making. I do do a comparison on what I think my peers are doing, but I also look at myself. I look at how much I'm putting away. I look at my savings. I look whether am I on a trajectory and I measure myself that way. So I'm not really about bothered about the noise per se. Yes, I'm conscious of what's going on. I've got to make sure that I've got a fairly secure job in a secure industry. Is there such a thing as a secure job and a secure industry? I think it is momentary, but if you ride the waves correctly and you time things correctly and you know when to make the switch, you need to always be able to understand the trajectory of your business, be in tune with what's going on, with the contracts they're winning and the risk that they're under. Um, as an example, with my second job, I knew things were getting a bit dicey and there were some really bad penalties that were coming and there was a lot of stress that the head of my department was under and I knew, okay, don't wait to be given the chop. You know, you be proactive, you be ahead of the game. I think if you had that mindset, I'm not saying you, you, you won't get caught out. I think that still happens. And I felt that a couple of jobs later on. But you can always kind of see when a train wreck is coming, as long as you're in tune with what's going on. And you can preempt. I think another big problem was Brexit. I really felt that hit when I was doing EPC-type contracts because at that point I came out of consultancy and I was into construction type projects. Ah, and then Brexit hit. And now what happens? Clients are confused. What do we build to? Do we use EU regs? Do we use British standards? Oh, wait a minute. British standards haven't been updated for like eons. You know, oh, but if I go with EU regs, how, how much am I going to be spending? What is the capex like on a project? Where do we get materials from? What happens at customs? So it became... A bit of a nightmare and a lot of projects were canned and but again if you're ahead of the game the thing that you realize is it's not construction i got to jump back into consultancy there was and there still is a wave of opportunities in terms of consultancy and engineering opportunities and how we should be future proving our designs and technologies and whatever through engaging with, you know, and consultancy type roles to plan for Brexit. So that sort of opened up and I realized it's time to jump ship. So I think if you have, pardon the phrase, half a brain and you're cognizant of what's going on in terms of politics and your, and your reading and you're always keeping abreast of situations, 
you can plan and you can actually ride the wave. Another example of one of the jobs that I had was consultancy in utilities, but in the pharmaceutical sector. Now, let me tell you, that has been phenomenal during the COVID wave. It is almost wrong to think that with that company, they actually grew exponentially. In this past one year, they doubled their workforce. We were helping the likes of Pfizer and GSK ramp up production and create vaccines, finding opportunities of how they're going to find enough water, electricity, heat, you name it, to be able to produce these vaccines in different parts of the world. So we were riding the wave. Fortunately, we had no impact. And it did affect me, but, you know, that's reality, right? One man's success is probably at the detriment of another. And unfortunately, I think that is life. Absolutely. Something that I learned over the years, a crisis is never a crisis for everybody. And everything that you described on how to strategically analyze and understand an industry, a market, a trend, which industry has the, the brightest future, when is it going up, when is it going down, it's extremely important for career management. Unfortunately, it's not something that we learn at university, not at all. And I remember when I was graduating and I just learned about how to make code and how to write equations, I was looking for jobs in artificial intelligence because it was cool and at the time it was very new and there were no projects about that. It was like really the, the forefront of the innovation. But unfortunately, in times of crisis, companies cut the R&D and cut all the, the, the cool stuff. So I started to, to get too, too excited on something that had no momentum and no job opportunities at the time. How did you learn to analyze an industry and a market in order to position yourself and in order to invest in the right skills for, you, for your career? A significant person who taught me to make these parallels is my father. So my father was brilliant. He graduated with a double first from the University of Leeds in mechanical engineering in the 70s. Engineering family. As an engineering family, my sister will not be happy that you've just said that. She she went off and did economics, but that's fine. We still love her. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, going back to, to drawing these parallels, it's it's definitely him. He Again, he came out with this fancy degree and learned very quickly that the degree was only good enough to get your first job. And believe it or not, the buck stopped there. So he would be able to analyze the job in relation to the people working in the company. He always taught me how your bosses would be thinking. He would draw parallels to what's going on in the market. He would have the ability to, to preempt what could possibly be happening. And I saw that also when he was working because he worked for Motorola mainly. He was um, a senior director and was was very involved with strategy and working in different countries, etc. So I think he understood the psychology along with the economics. 
and more importantly, you know, this the skill set. And he's given that to me over the years. And I think it's just it's just ingrained. And as you're working and as you grow older, unfortunately, I think it just sort of it sort of makes sense and you know what to look out for if 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 that means anything. And it's that acumen that you're developing a year on year. They talk about engineering acumen as an example. To be able to have engineering acumen is actually something that is developed over the years. So you don't need to know everything to its finite degree, but you should be able to preempt how a project is going, to be able to understand what that risk or that opportunity is, or, you know, I think we should be concentrating on this aspect, uh, we should be slowing down on something else. So likewise in life, that acumen is something that takes time. I don't think it's something that comes overnight. And I was fortunate with having a father that I had. I remember in my early days, I knew nothing about all the world of business and companies. And, and I was trying to understand why, as a young graduate, I couldn't find easily a job as a junior consultant, although uh, I was you know, as a young graduate, that's the cheapest you can get in your in your career. And I was seeing people more experienced. They were charged like three times more and they got assignment and mission as freelancer hired in big companies so easily and so quickly. And I remember the day that it was a senior manager at a big consultancy who explained to me that actually the value that you have as a junior consultant is very low. You're only an investment because you would become productive after two years. And during times of crisis, no company wants to, to hire juniors and invest in them. They all want short projects. They want experts, senior people who can do it in three months and done. They don't want to have like large projects with the juniors and the senior, etc. Because they know perfectly that the juniors are, are mostly here to, to, to learn. And, and they don't want to pay for that. And it's very hard in this context when nobody wants to, to invest in the young graduates to find your first job and your first opportunity. Not because you're not good enough, just, but just because the context isn't helping you for that. Do you see a parallel between 2010 when you graduated and what's going on today in the job market? Unfortunately... Yes, yes, most definitely. But I think that creativity that I spoke about in terms of internships, in terms of, you know, six-month contracts, they are around. And I think what's happened now in industries that are buoyant as a result of, of COVID or have managed to sustain themselves is they recognize this is the time to increase their workforce and take advantage of these very clever graduates. So again, if you have relatively creative graduates who are creative in ways of finding jobs, thinking about industries that could be thriving in today's current climate, they can actually secure pretty good jobs at a fraction of the salary. So that's the part which isn't too good, but at least they're still getting decent enough experience and making money. And I think it's it's somewhat of a win-win, but these opportunities... I believe whatever little I see now uh, as a working individual is unfortunately few and far between. But it's not that it's not happening. I think the parallel of, of what I saw 10 years ago, what I went through and what's happening now, or people that I'm recruiting, offering six-month contracts, you know, that does still exist. And employers, again, 
have that unfair edge that they can get whoever they want at a fraction of the cost. So that's good for them. In 2011, I was the one looking for internships and jobs. And now I'm the one hiring interns and, <laughs> and employees. And actually flipping and going to, to the other side made me understand much more about the challenges of hiring the right candidates and how companies just hire people. Because I, initially I thought I was a bit naive that companies were looking for people who had the technical skills so that they could learn and do the job. Actually, over time I realized that having the technical skills is only half of the equation. The other half is, do you feel the company culture? You will be there talking and interacting with everybody about 10 hours a day, especially if you're an engineer. And if you're not able to communicate and fit into the team spirit, and if you're not motivated by what the company is working on, then you're never going to, to be a happy employee and you're never going to be a productive employee. That's really something that I wish I knew at the time. Is there any gold nugget that you wish you knew when you were looking for your first job and that you would like to share with everybody who's who are maybe at the very start of their career and trying to ace their job application? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I think if there was one thing I would do differently is I would have maybe spent more time also on my cover letters. I was just trying to send as many applications as I could and hope that, you know, one would become a success. Maybe if I spent more time on my cover letters, maybe if I joined more nonprofit organizations, maybe if I actually put myself out there and became more visible, that may have helped the journey. But to be fair, on my part, I spent three months looking for a job. So it wasn't too long. It was painful, but it wasn't too long. It's long three months for an engineer. True, but I was supporting myself for temporary work and I was actually fully financially stable, not needing a dime from my dad after graduation. I remember he was saying that was one of the greatest challenges for him, the fact that I didn't need his money anymore. So officially, when I graduated on June 21st, I was done. I did not need any more money from him. I had managed my, you know, where I was renting. I moved out. I had connections. I had friends that were helping. I was paying much lower rents. I was really on my personal savings, you know, like you cannot imagine. And I always just think, is, is there a way of fastening that process of actually getting to the internship? Maybe I should have made myself more visible. You should join as many organizations, put yourself out there, make yourself heard. And I think then you may get that opportunity. People are coming to hire you. People are coming to talk to you. Maybe it wasn't as evident 10 years ago compared to what it is now. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But what I see now as an example, again, because of my sister, there's so many platforms, right? There's so many platforms. There's so many things you can do and just become noticeable. Take that hit. Maybe you're not getting paid, but that opportunity, that experience. And then gradually, if, if, if a person is saying, hey, I don't want to hire you because you have zero experience, But now if I'm able to do all of this working from home, not being physically sat in an office, I may accumulate that five-year experience in one year. And I'm seeing that with her. And actually, as, as you've just said, you're now in the position where you're hiring people. Her CV to me is going to look pretty interesting. 
I'm not necessarily going to look for five years, you know, 2015 to 2020 or whatever. I Even in that one year, a person has done this much in a crisis speaks volumes about a person. Absolutely. And I would want to have that conversation with that individual. Because like, like you said, that, that technical aspect is one-fifth of the equation. That ability to, how have you done all of this in this past year? How did you find these opportunities? Are you a person who is engaging? Do I want to have a conversation with you? Can I see you working with the rest of these loony bins at work you know, or these serious people at work? You've also got to tie it in with the people they're working with. And to me, a person like that would 100% stand out and I'd give them a chance. Yes, they may be too ambitious, but how do I know? It's what I'm seeing on paper, right? I don't know if they're going to jump ship to another company, but it's what I'm seeing on paper. The person is enthusiastic and creative. Why not give, give him or her a shot? It's absolutely huge, the difference between people who go through the crisis, gaining skills and having experience, and, and those who don't. And I know it's tough and it's depressing because it's COVID and you can't go out, social life is impacted, uh, getting the right job is impacted, having like your dream role maybe is not possible. But having actionable skills that even you manage to get a, an internship, let's forget the money for a second at the start of the career, what matters are the skills. Get the skills that will lead you to where you want to be. That's the, really the number one thing. And even if you can't get an internship, a role, just work on your own. You want to be a web developer, nobody's hiring you, just create a web website, anything like a web calendar on your own and show it, look, I've done that. I've learned how to do it by myself. You want to be a copywriter, just write articles, blog, publish it and show that people like what you're doing. I can see the difference between those who navigate through the crisis with this level of proactivity and they keep learning on their own, even if they know that it's tough and they, they don't have the situation that they want to, but they keep improving and learning and those who don't, because at the end of the crisis, all companies will be looking and fighting for those who have learned the skills because there will be almost nobody with experience coming out of university. Companies will not hiring them. But those who did the extra effort or the extra mile, it will pay off 10x, for sure. 100%. That's, that's, a, that's a very good point, Sam. So what is a struggle now could end up becoming a major plus point further down the line. I think what is stressful for individuals is not being able to understand just how long this time frame is. That's the big unknown, isn't it, when, when you think about it? Because it's been slapped with COVID and COVID is this beast that keeps manifesting itself in, in different guises and different variants. So I think maybe, maybe that's the stress point and maybe we're finally getting on top of that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. At the end of it, whenever that may be, people, these, these people who have done so well maneuvering will probably be in high demand. Nobody knows how long a crisis can last, but it will eventually end up. And if you become good at something, then people will want your skills. If you show the right mindset, people will want to work with you. They will want to be in, in their team. 
actually, I would even say that it's slightly easier to navigate through the crisis during the COVID. So I remember at the time I graduated, most of my classmates also graduated and almost all job offers were frozen. Uh, you would be lucky to even have an, an internship. And at the time there was no remote work. So to get to the interview, you still need to be where you want to work. So typically if you want to be in London or in the capital, it's very expensive and you don't have a job. So it's very stressful to spend like every month, okay, I'm still living there, I need to be there, I need to do the job interview, I need to take the train, etc. Whereas now, since the world has gone remote, it's so easy to apply to anywhere. The UK, America, Europe, Asia, anywhere you want. You don't need to, you don't need to move. You actually are probably much less stressed about money because worst case, you can, you can just stay with your parents. Nobody cares where you're working from when you're working remotely. And I think people should use that at their advantage now, nowadays to, to navigate through the crisis. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. But I just wonder whether it would make people lackadaisical and be laid back thinking, you know, I don't have to allow for the exorbitant rent. I don't have to allow for that transport into London. Are they going to be more sensible with their money? One one hopes so. I mean, what you said in terms in terms of <laughs> in terms of trying to get to the interview in London, that was exactly my situation because I was living in Sheffield, and at that point I met my uh, my, uh, my my then boyfriend, now husband, and we were always two hundred miles apart. And I was trying to go for interviews down south, and you know what? I wouldn't actually interview with a company that was unwilling to reimburse my train tickets. Because as far as I was concerned, that is way too expensive and I'm not keen on footing that bill. But at the same time, I think that was there was that drive and determination that, hey, if I'm going to take a job down south, how am I going to afford this? How do I find a way of living comfortably, not compromising on my quality of life? Still having to travel by train, you couldn't change that, could you? This is a monopoly. You can't drive into London. You're forced to take the train. But it's, I think, the one country in the world where taking a train is more expensive than driving. But that's another story for another day. Train in the UK, the, the trains are the most expensive in, I think, every country I have been. And I've been in more than 35 countries. It's as It's more expensive than in Switzerland. Absolutely. It's completely extortionate. When I was working in London, it was what, 92, 94 pounds a week? It was just mad. I thought I was actually saving by not buying a yearly pass because I also had to travel to site. But it was just phenomenal. And if I didn't actually live with my husband or my boyfriend and we didn't have a dual income, we wouldn't have been able to afford this move. So I just wonder, going back to people working online, Hopefully, if they're savvy enough and they actually recognize how much they can put away. Because personally, we put a good amount away last year. It was substantial because my daughter wasn't actually going to the nursery anymore. And I was like, oh my God, hallelujah. I mean, it was very difficult to manage at home. But in terms of the amount of money that we put away and not having to pay for petrol. I mean, the car was practically sat there. We put away so much that we actually had enough to do house renovations this year. It was something that I well done. that I didn't even think was going to happen. So 
hopefully that's what comes out as a result of people working from home or, or whatever these remote jobs are. I think it's also increased productivity tremendously because you now don't have to fly and meet your client and sit there for X number of hours and come back. I feel things are quicker. So we're also making business decisions. We are winning work faster. I don't know if it's the same for you, but we've won contracts where we've never actually had a single physical meeting with the client in the meeting room. We're doing everything via Teams. It's, it's become fascinating. But one of the downsides, I feel personally, is I'm just continuously working. It's meetings and it's just back to back. You'd be lucky if you get 20 minutes for lunch. It's just back to back from eight in the morning to seven at night, just back to back. And that family balance life, it's a weird thing, isn't it? I'm sat at home, but I'm seeing less of my daughter downstairs than when I actually drove to work and came back home by six o'clock. Because here I'm always plugged in. So I think at the end of this, we will definitely come out with a long list of, of pros and cons. I mean, I mean, just look at the environment as a sustainability lead, that this is brilliant. We've used the greatest amount of renewable energy that we ever could during the pandemic. Brilliant. You know, the amount of CO2 emissions has reduced tremendously. So how do we make this mode of living more sustainable for the environment. Because think about it, if we don't have, if we're not looking after our environment and we've also got COVID, think about if you have floods as an example, people would be uprooted from their houses, made to stay collectively in a hall, in a town hall. And that's complete anathema to what people need to do to protect themselves from COVID, isn't it? So we've always got to make sure that the two and we're already starting to see overlaps, we need to somehow make sure that people understand that climate activity must still go on. It's important to, to, to make our, our planet you know, a greener, safer, you know, decarbonization uh, needs to carry on. It's equally important. And we're also saving money in the long run. I wish employers would understand that. That's honestly half the battle won. There's a direct correlation between human activity, consumption, and impact on the environment. And one of the reasons that I don't like consumerism, it's not only it doesn't make people happy, but it's also bad for the planet. We, we buy too much stuff that we don't need, and then it all ends up being thrown away, especially in Africa, in Asia, they become the trash of the world. I think there's about... 80% of the fashion bought that is not used. And they, they don't even recycle it. They just throw it away like that. You, you mentioned that during this lockdown period, you never save that much. And that's great. I wish it was the case for everybody. But unfortunately, I can tell you that it's not necessarily the case. I'm the co-founder of a fintech company. And what we do is we do a lot of analytics on how people are saving, investing, and spending. And... The thing is, people spend a lot to fulfill their frustration, their emotional voids, and their emotional needs that are not fulfilled anymore because of the lack of social contact and human connection. And the lockdown is very tough for especially extrovert people that need this, this human contact to feel good. And how do people compensate? Well, there's Amazon. 
personally, in my residence, I never saw in my entire life that many Amazon packages. They are all piled up in <laughs> in the hall. It's unseen, really unseen. And I think a lot of people are coping with the lockdown by buying stuff because they need to distract themselves because it's tough to be cut socially. And, and that's something that we never talk about. We thought... We, we always say, okay, the lockdown is important to, to prevent the, the spread of the virus. We never talk about the cost of the lockdown, especially for the young generation. And the young, the young generation is always the one who pays the hardest price for the crisis, for the cost. Because it's not experienced people who have less job opportunities. It's people who graduate, people who are looking for their first internship to get the first experience. These are always the ones who are hit the hardest by any crisis. And the economic measures are not going to make up for the hardship of going through your first job jump hunt. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a very good point. I, I didn't actually um think of it that way. I guess it's that frustration that you're talking about. Gosh, it must make life even worse, isn't it? Because you don't have a job, you are tapping into whatever savings that you've got. You're probably using mom and dad's savings too. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. So are you are you actually seeing them spend more uh, through your app? How have you how have you amassed this information? How bad is it, out of curiosity? So they, they don't necessarily spend more, but they reallocate their spending. So before Everything that was going into going out, entertainment, social activity, restaurant is now replaced by Amazon. Amazon. But is it Amazon. more than what they've, they've allowed for? Because personally, we have kind of done that. But I think because our fixed expenditure, which was very high in relation to our net salary coming home, because that all of a sudden just disappeared overnight. Yes, you could argue that it got channeled differently, but we would never be able to hit that type of fixed expenditure, monthly fixed expenditure, if that makes sense. So I would say that to simplify things, there are two typical behaviors. One is people, they just spend on something else. So instead of socializing, they would spend on ASOS, Amazon, and buying more stuff. And the others are just like you. They save actually much more because they have cut significantly their spending. And what do people do with the money that accumulates suddenly? Well, that explains the rise in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, GME, and, and uh, all the meme stocks. And that creates all this inflation, inflation in these asset classes. I see. That's yeah. That's a very interesting point. I did. I did not realize that. In terms of, so these are people actually investing because of, with, with this surplus money. That's what you're explaining, correct? I have yeah, a lot of people are reinvesting their stimulus package, their extra saving into something that needs to give them a bit of adrenaline because they they don't have that anymore in, in the lockdown. I see. I right. I see. I'm getting it now. So they're looking for that excitement that exactly. they're not getting i see now that is that is very there are different ways to get excitement in life you can order 
TVs, new shoes, or new races, or anything from Amazon, or you can trade Bitcoin, or you can renovate your house. (laughs) (laughs) I guess to each his own, so long as they're not taking a substantial amount of risk. I mean, I I think about, you know, exactly what you say. I'm, I'm sometimes thinking I would like to be more, what's the word, adventurous in my investment platforms. But then at the same time, I, I look at my situation and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a, we've got a family, I've got to be conservative. But we have been in that position where, you know, what do we do with this surplus money? Do you? What do we do with this surplus money? Are we going... Do, do, do you have to be conservative if you have a family? I, I think you're right. That should be challenged. I think my financial education needs to be better. I think... I need to do more and I I can do more. Why am I being so traditional? We are only investing, to be absolutely honest, in in bonds and and the property market, you know. But I'm also cognizant of this big expenditure called child (laughs) and future children, which which to me (laughs) as an engineer... It never goes down. Exactly, as an engineer, as a project manager, it's just really difficult. You need to see all my pretty plots, you know, but right now everything is exponential. Mm. And I'm trying to get to sort of 2040 time, 2039, 2040, when I'm hoping things plateau and I have a decent enough, you know, pot for pension. So I'm a relatively simple person, but this this exponent is, is, is frightening. It, it really is frightening. But yeah, I am open to suggestions. I'm open to learning, Sam. I, um, I want to understand better what my investment options are. Why is it that I'm only taking investments between sort of a 4 or 6% return? I am young. Why aren't I considering low double digits, as an example? Why am I doing only what I know or what my family knows? These are definitely questions that I should be researching into. I I think it also goes back to how you're thought in school, isn't it? It's like you said earlier, you're thought just to become this great employee. And nobody tells you what happens after that. And it's very much a journey that you work out by yourself through friends, family, your husband, what his family have done in the past. My husband is Italian. I'm Malaysian originally. So we're already coming at it from different angles. Um, Questions like who manages the money, who decides about investing. Besides just me trying to get my head into action, I'm also dealing with obviously marrying another person, which is complicated enough. And what is he used to? His father, as an example is a businessman and creates connoisseur chocolates in Italy. My father, traditional employee. You know, we're coming at it from from different angles. My husband is always like, we need to form our own company and, and do consultancy and, and whatever, whatever. And I'm just like, oh, no, you know, it's fraught with risks. Never. I'd rather just buy a house or, you know, rent or do conventional things. I just can't get my head into running my own company. It's it's just so scary to me, but it's not to him as an example, because he's seen how his father has created a relatively successful business. And to him, you know, that that's the way to go. So yeah, I think I have a lot to learn, Sam, a lot to learn. No, we never learn everything from, from university. And one of the things that we never hear about is about perception of risk. I'll give you a quick example. If you say to most people that you're going to invest 100 pounds or dollars in the stock market, they would say, oh, that's risky. 
I might lose the money. I've worked hard for that money. Whereas if you're going to tell them you're going to borrow 100 pounds on a credit card, nobody thinks it's risky. Oh, great, I have money. But let's look at the math because you're an engineer. What's your expected gain of investing 100 pounds in the stock market? Well, you're taking a short-term risk because in the short-term, things can behave in a very volatile and very random way. But we know empirically that eventually the economy is growing, companies make more money. So over the years, in the long horizon, 10, 20, it will be more. So on overall, your expected gain is positive. If you wait 10 or 20 years, you will have much more than your 100 pounds. And we actually know that on average, it's 9% profit. However, if you borrow 100 pounds on the credit card debt, you have zero probability to make money. You actually have 100% probability to lose money. If you don't pay it back, pay it back you're losing 20% per year, which grows exponentially. But now the irony, when you're talking about investing in the stock market, you have warning everywhere. Oh, it's risky. Capital at risk. Of course it is. There's nothing certain in life. But on overall, you have a much higher chance to make money than to lose money. Whereas if you take debt on credit cards, well, you have a 100% chance to lose money. And we don't put any warning capital at risk. Getting on debt can be very dangerous. Debt will make you broke, especially on credit card, etc. Unfortunately, the builds a very strange perception of what is risky and what is not risky. So, of course, leaving your job to start a business, that's definitely risky. You're losing your income, which is kind of stable. You know exactly how much you will earn every month. You know that it will feed the family. Is investing £100 in the context where you save five times more that risky? If you ask me, no. I think you've explained it really well and you, if you've, you've nailed it, isn't it? The fact that it's just the unknown, Sam. I literally think it's the unknown. It's the perception that if you are into shares, bonds, mutual bonds, what have you, ETFs, you, you must be an investor and you must have surplus money. And people panic because what is surplus money? You know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I have an, my, my standard overdraft is £2,000 a month or whatever. People, I don't even know why people are so terrified of credit cards. They should be terrified of and credit cards. And this may sound contentious, <laughs> but they should be terrified of credit cards if they are not paying it on time. But credit cards are brilliant for cash flow purposes. What is the rush to give your money to the person, Right. You can take that opportunity to earn interest or, or whatever, but you use it as a cash flow tool. And so long as you're responsible enough to pay it after 56 days or what, whatever the terms are, then you have been able to use something fruitfully and not actually fall into this credit card trap. So a lot of the time, it is coming down to knowledge to having the right knowledge, to removing these wrong perceptions. And why don't they teach this in schools? I have no idea. 
I genuinely have no idea. Where do we get this information from? We're certainly not getting it at work because we're just being conditioned to be as good as an employee working from eight to eight, nine to five, whatever. You don't even have time. I don't know if you felt the same way when you were in consultancy, but consultancy can be ruthless. Consultancy can be so draining that when you're done with your day job, and you know, you've spent a bit of time with your child, you're so tired, you don't even have the capacity and capability to go and do that research to understand what truly are these risks that people are talking about, or this fancy terminology. I think another thing that puts people off is the, ter- the, the terminology in the financial world. And maybe the likes of proper investment platforms and proper knowledge banks where people can actually tap into and learn if they're willing to learn maybe that would be a budge isn't it it's that financial education that is potentially lacking in individuals i used to understand nothing of the technical financial jargon and it took me three years in the investment banking world to really understand what's going on and then to understand why do they have so much jargon? You obviously have a financial background. What is the rationale for that? Why overcomplicate it? They overcomplicate because if people really understood how simple it is, you would need to remove half of the jobs in the right. financial industry. There you have it. And you would also need to cut by half their profits. Oh dear, we wouldn't want that now, would we? <laughs> That is significant. So you're saying things can be done on a more efficient level. You can have more people partaking and it could be a better global distribution of wealth, I guess, in a nutshell. Absolutely. There's a dark secret that everybody knows on the trading floor and in the financial industry. 99% of asset managers and asset managers are the guys who bring the shirt and the tie that manage the money of people for their retirement, for their making investment and making money. They are paid a lot of money. 99% of them, once you deduct their fees, they underperform the benchmark. And the benchmark is, for example, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500. Translation in plain English, 99% of them are losing you money if you give them your money to invest. Wow, that is unbelievable. And now it's clear why there is so much jargon and so much complexity. That is unbelievable. Everybody knows that on the trading floor, everybody. Like It's not a secret, it's not for discussion. It's a very known fact. So what do you think is the baby steps to get people to want to understand finance, want to be less frightened with investing? Should it be a different word altogether? Because sometimes just just the word investing can, can throw people off. Education. So it's intellectual curiosity, the desire to be in control of your finances, and then education. Financial education is the difference between people who build wealth and those who don't. Of course, they will never tell you that at university. No, they won't. They want you to be good employees for the rest of your life. Exactly. Financial education is the most underrated investment because it's not sexy. 
Or maybe it's just not even available. Do people really know how to obtain financial education? Do they think this is something that you learn when you pursue a university degree? Is this something that can be self-taught? You know, again, talking about my father, that's exactly how he was. He decided at the age of 30 that he couldn't work anymore. Not that he stopped working as an employee, but he couldn't make this his sole income. It's not going to get him to where he needs to be. He's got to educate both of his girls abroad. Uh, at the time, Malaysia and the pound sterling was what? An exchange rate of 6.57. So six, six and a half ringgit to like to the pound, to, you know, to one pound. So extortionate figures. And, you know, he began thinking that he, he's got to do something. He's got to want to learn. And that's exactly what he did. He always told us that one of the easiest ways to learn financial jargon is just reading the financial section, just reading the news, just reading the articles. And over time, you will understand what they're saying. You know, it's, it tends to be repeatable. You need to understand the basics and you'll be able to suss out what they're saying. And I think another good thing that he's always taught me, at least, is don't be afraid of the banks. People are always afraid of talking with the banks, of talking with authority. When they're handling my money and doing God knows what with my money, why am I afraid to talk to the banks? The banks work for you. And I think... That your money works for them. Just that psychological rationale is so key because it doesn't matter if you're 25 years old or you're 52 years old. The way you approach the bank, the way you talk to them, the way you understand them, and the way they understand you. I think in this day and age, most people don't want to talk to their banks. Actually, I'll presume that nowadays, most people never even contacted their banker. Everything is just online. The new generation more than now 60% of them have a new bank as their main account. So I think this talk to your bank that your father told you probably worked very well for him, but it's not going to be applicable in, in our very fast changing world. And I do agree that financial education is a challenge. And the hard thing is to know what to follow and who to listen to. That's why that we are creating the financial education for anybody who wants to learn about finance, which is the key to build financial freedom. Yeah, so platforms like Nova, hopefully, I think if they target the right crowd or, or the millennials, I think is what you are targeting. Potentially, that is the right group of people. And hopefully they want to learn because, yes, you're right, the times are changing. I still think banks will talk to you if, if you're putting in a lot of money, but maybe... But should you talk to your bank? <laughs> I think you should. I think the power of always picking up the phone and talking to someone and confronting it, you know, head on is something that people should not shy away from. You discuss how much, you know, you think you should be paying, how much that initial fee deduction could be on your bond fund, as an example. That's also negotiable. You just don't know, do you? You just assume or accept. It's classic terms and conditions. If you think about it contractually, people always dish out. They are best terms and conditions, correct? But that doesn't mean you've got to accept everything. Why do people do that? We, we don't do that in trade. We don't. 
as a PM, I would take a person's terms and conditions and thank you very much. That's very good. Here are mine. And we come to a compromise. We come to an understanding. I think we should be able to take that approach even with financial authorities. Why ever not? I think if people... I love the board approach. <laughs> I think if people were educated... Did, did you manage to do that in real life with your bank? Um, to an extent, yes. Especially when negotiating fees on the bond funds. I did get a reduction. I've also negotiated in terms of this purchase of this house. I've also negotiated with my lawyers as an example. I don't take things at face value. I think banks is one thing, but we're talking here also about authority. Authority come in, comes in different shapes and forms. One important element of education is make people confident, you know, speak up. Don't just take things lying down. Escalate it when things are not going your way. Why ever not? That also needs to come out. Whether it's financial education, whether it's anything, really. Yeah, I think that has been my personally one of my single differentiating factors, even in my career and my personal life. You know, don't take things at face value. Ask. That's a great conclusion speak up make things your way and it works for getting your first job it works for making your next next career move yes it works also on getting that new that mortgage the mortgage that you want you know challenge ask see what's out there i think that bold move also makes you make the right investments you got you're also going to have falls i'm not saying you're not going to have falls but are they falls or are they learning experiences, you know, to the next best thing. And you, I think you always have to be confident in yourself that you tried your level best. You did challenge it. Okay, it happened, but you gave it your all, you know, your best shot. It applies throughout, I feel, every phase of our lives. You never have any regret when you know that you have done your best and be 100% in what you're trying to achieve. Correct. Absolutely. Fantastic. Anush, thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you very much, Sam, for having me. That has been a very pleasant conversation. Likewise. So, wishing you all the best. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode enjoyable, inspiring and educational. In this era of instant gratification, it is more important than ever to train our delayed gratification muscle. So keep learning, keep improving by 1% every day. You may not see the results right now, but this is a secret of all the successful people I've met. Please help me spread financial education by sharing this podcast with your friends and community. I would love it if you could also leave us a review, it really helps the show. Now, I would like you to forget about all the advertising that is being pushed to us on a daily basis and think about your personal financial goals. What do you really want to achieve with your money? If you have financial objectives, then check out the Nova Money app. Nova is an AI that will show you how to set financial goals and how to achieve them. A plan is only useful if you can follow it. That's why Nova will send you daily motivational messages. 
to give you the strength to ignore the daily temptations of spending money and stay focused on your goals. Like other budgeting apps, Nova connects all your bank accounts in one place to give you the full picture. The difference is that the Nova AI will do all the budgeting and tracking for you. The second difference is that unlike many free personal finance apps, we don't sell users data. All your data is encrypted and will remain completely private. Make sure that you're investing in your financial education. Make sure that you're building your financial freedom. And I'll speak to you in the next episode.